Alright you guys, well I am very excited for this new section that we're in tonight. Um, apparently, the end of chapter 3 is where many pastors end their series in Revelation. I read that recently, and I assume that it actually is true. Uh, before I was serving as an elder or a, or a pastor, the pastor of the church that I was attended did that very thing, actually. He just stopped the series at the end of Revelation chapter 3 at, with these letters to the seven churches. And for unrelated reasons, I was, I was checking his current church's website. And there was a series on eschatology there, which touched on a few themes found in Revelation. But then there was another series somewhat recently that was only on Revelation 2 and 3. And this is my suspicion, meaning I could certainly be wrong here. But I think that's because of our doctrine and our presuppositions. Generally speaking, as a, as a group of evangelical Christians in the United States of America as a whole, why, as to why it is that many pastors don't go beyond chapters 2 and 3 in this book. You see, so many in the church today hold to what is called a dispensational premillennial hermeneutic. And for the sake of time tonight, I mean, I've already talked about that some in previous sermons. But the angle that I'm thinking of right now is that it means for those people who hold to that system of belief, dispensational premillennialism, for them, most of John's apocalypse is future. That, In other words, that chapters 4 through 22 are all future, and that it doesn't apply to saints living today. And it certainly didn't apply to the saints living during the time when John wrote this. And then the only way it would apply to saints living today is if that supposed secret rapture is close. But even then, these chapters would only be applicable for those who are, quote, left behind. So many people, I think because of that, just stop here. They stop at the end of chapter 3. Not all dispensational premillennials, of course, I and mean, lots of them have preached through this whole book. But this is really where the book starts to get going. This is really where it picks up. And we see the, the type of apocalyptic literature that we were I was trying to prepare us for back in chapter 1 and in the, in the introductory sermons to the series as well, too. Because remember, we have been approaching this book with the correct understanding that the events in this book are for the churches that exist in between Christ's first and second coming. I mean, could you imagine even being one of the churches that received one of those seven opening letters and then thinking that out of the whole letter, only seven to 12 verses were actually ap uh, applicable to you, with maybe the last two chapters also. But that's essentially what dispensational her, uh, premillennialism says so it's very it's very strange now i have more introductory comments to make and that is in part because i'm introducing a new section tonight but i want to read the text first and we're what we're going to do tonight is actually we're going to read quite a bit we're going to read a lot i won't be explaining all of the verses tonight obviously that'll come in the next few weeks i have no idea how long the section will take actually it could be two three six sermons seven sermons through the section i'm not sure but what i wanted to do for tonight is build up some basic understanding that has to do with this section and the section that is beyond it and then over the next weeks after that we'll deal with the specifics of the text so i want to read chapters four and five tonight so we're going to read two whole chapters tonight which is more than we typically do but they're wonderful and because they're, they are so magnificent, really. I want us to kind of, if we can, put yourself in John's shoes. Remember, this is, this is a vision that he's seeing. So maybe just try to imagine, as I read, 
that you're seeing what John is seeing. Because that's what he's wanting to communicate to us. He's wanting to show us what he's seeing. And then obviously there are theological truths behind what he's seeing. And we'll deal with those when we get more detailed into the text over the coming weeks. But technically, um, so this, this is a new section that he's receiving all at once. And actually a little bit more than four and five, actually. Uh, four, chapter four, five, and six. But chapters four and five are a specific section that deal with the throne of God. The throne of God in heaven. And so John sees this vision here now that his now that the message to the church is he's received that and he's he's recorded those, and now he gets this new vision that begins with the throne room of God. So and what I want to say is that this throne room of God is the source of our hope and our joy. And we'll explain that more as we go on. So let's read, okay? The reading of God's word, beginning at verse one in Revelation four. After this I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. And though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by the blood 
by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, a sufficient word. Let's pray. Father, we give you all praise and glory, Lord, even knowing now after having just read that even that there are fantastic creatures worshiping you in heaven along with everyone and everything for you are worthy of worship, Lord. And we pray that through this passage, you would help us to know you more and that you would give us a a right understanding of you and that you would reorientate our lives so that they would be built upon you as the center of not just our life, but the center of everything. You are glorious, Lord. And we pray that this, um, as we study your word, just even in an introductory manner to this great passage tonight, that you would help us, Holy Spirit, uh, so that we can be better prepared to understand your word as we continue on through this amazing book that you have uh, written and preserved for us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a lot to take in there. I get that. But imagine, this is what our fellow brother in the faith had to take in at this point of the series of visions that he was given. It's majestic. It's humbling. Maybe we might think it's confusing. Perhaps, you know, I could see that. It's in some ways terrifying. But at least one thing comes across abundantly clear. This vision is awe-inspiring. God is awesome. There is none like our God. There is none that deserves worship and adoration like the Lord our God. The vision of the throne room that we have in these two chapters before us, it's, it's awesome. In chapter 4, predominantly, we have the throne and Yahweh and his sovereignty over all creation in view. In chapter 5, the focus is similar, similar but it's more narrow. It's the throne, but there it's specifically the Son. It's Jesus that's in view. And it's his sovereignty over redemption that is specifically being considered. And certainly that same sovereignty is shared among the Godhead. But the focus is on Christ Jesus, our Lord, there in chapter 5. Now, technically speaking, this is the second of seven parallel visions that John has been given. And we know that because of how verse 1 in chapter 4 begins. I think about that even. We, what have we already talked about with the number seven when it comes to this book and Jewish apocalyptic literature especially? What is the significance of the number seven here? Completion, of perfection, of fullness. The idea being that this, that this full revelation from the whole book of the apocalypse from chapter one through chapter 22 is really, really important, and is what we especially need to know as a whole, as believers who are living during this time period. And each of these different cycles of visions, these seven visions, applies to the church living during the span of the time between the first and second coming. 
You could call it a millennium, but that is a hangout for many since it's not a literal 1,000 years, but rather a, by a millennium, what's meant in Revelation uh, towards the end when it talks about that in Revelation 20, is it means a long period of time determined by God. Anyways, the, the first vision that John received was the vision of Christ walking among the candlesticks. We read some things there that were similar to the vision that was back in chapter 1. We read some things in chapter 1 that were really similar to what we read here in chapter 4 and 5. And then that first vision took us through section or through chapter 3. Technically, this section that we're looking at here, this second vision, will take us all the way through chapter 6. I'll turn really quick over to chapter 7. Look at 7 verse 1. Look how it begins. After this. That's the same way that chapter 4 began, isn't it? After this. So that's a clue to us that John is receiving a new vision that the church is supposed to know and to understand. That would be, at, at chapter 7, that would be the start of the third cycle of visions. And so a word about that as well, and I've mentioned this before, but it was 18 or 19 sermons ago, so it bears repeating now once more. Uh, we need to be familiar with a few rules when it comes to understanding this apocalypse of john about the lord jesus christ the book of revelation especially now as we are entering the more difficult parts of the books the the apocalyptic literature so first in order to not get confused we need to interpret this book in a cyclical manner and not in a linear sense and i know how weird that is uh, typically when we read a book or a letter or typically when we write something ourselves we put things that happen in order of when they happen. So we, are, we operate more linearly in our culture and society. It's been the way it has been for a very long time. We could even consider a very popular Christian work called The Pilgrim's Progress. Have any of you guys read that before? Are you wearing a Pilgrim's Progress shirt tonight? Yeah. Tight. Yeah, there's a movie you could watch about it as well too. Um, there's another, like a shorter paraphrase of it called The Dangerous Journey that you could read as well. It's really good and helpful. But in that book, it's about a, a fellow believer, a man named Christian, who hears the gospel, he's converted, and then the story, I know, continues ex to explain his life and the things he goes through, through allegories and metaphors. The Christian life on the way to glory and to heaven, the celestial city in the book. And it considers the Christian life in a step-by-step -step format with these types of trials and encouragements that we would receive on the way. And so you read that book, from start to end, and that's how all things are happening in that specific order. But if we were to do, to do that, if we were to read Revelation, like we would read the Pilgrim's Progress, we would, even though Pilgrim's Progress has a lot of allegories and metaphors in it and symbols, we would get ourselves in trouble with understanding it. We'd end up destroying the message, really, that Christ has for his churches. We, we are not reading about events that happen linearly here. And so I could see how that could be confusing because each of these sections after, or these sections of visions after the, the first one, so beginning with the second one here in chapter four, they all begin with the words, after this. So after this is how 7-1 starts. It's how 7-9 starts. It's how 15-5 starts. It's how 18-1 starts. And it's how 19-1 starts. So included with 4-1 and then the opening vision in chapter one, seven cyclical visions that we have in this book. So six times total. And being that the first time that we see it is in 4.1, again, that means that there was one preceding it. So again, seven total times. And then, and ironically, I just did it then by saying, and then, I'm using the thing that I'm trying to explain. 
we're going to read as we go through this, especially in chapter 6 and following, John's going to say many more times, then I saw, then I saw. And he'll, he'll use that phrase over and over and over again too, too many times for me to count. And for us, when we, hear, when we hear things like that, we naturally assume that everything is nicely fitting like on a number line, going from least to greatest, going from smallest to greatest, or from the past to the future. But that's not the way this book works. When we see after this, or we see then I saw, it doesn't mean that these things are coming up right after each other over the course of history. The apostle is simply explaining what he saw in the order that he saw them. Does that make sense? When he says after this or then I saw, all he's doing is explaining the order that he saw them. It doesn't mean that that's the order that they happen over the course of history. He's just saying the order which he saw, which he saw them, which they were revealed to him. Remember, we need to think of the apocalypse in light of what is called recapitulation, which means that we're seeing the same event from multiple different angles. It's like we're given a panoramic view, being able to see the same things that are happening, but through a different, through a vantage point of someone else for a number of different um, examples or, or times. It's easy to think of it like this. If you've ever seen an NFL football game, maybe even just the Super Bowl, uh, then you would maybe know how this works. Sometimes a play will get challenged and like a flag is thrown. And then while the refs are deliberating and talking about the play, it'll cut to these cut scenes where you see that play from different camera angles that were taken on the field. Maybe there's one right above, there's one behind, to the side, to the other side, in front. And so you see the play happening from all these different angles. And from one angle, it looks like, or from one vantage point, it looks like, you know, the, the football crossed the, the, the line. From another angle, it looks like it didn't make it. From another angle, you see that maybe there's a, a flag, there's someone holding a football player that you couldn't see before, or a face mask. And it's all the same play. But depending on which angle you look at, you only see certain things. Well, that's kind of like what recapitulation is like. That's what re Revelation is doing. It's describing the same play. In other words, this time period in between Jesus' first and second coming, but just from different angles. It's not a linear order of history. It's talking about this whole time spread just from different points of view. That's what we have going on here. And this will especially make sense, by the way, when we get to the three series of seven judgments, which begin in chapter six. Secondly, second thing we need to remember is that Revelation is written symbolically, or we might say liter literalistically and not always literal. Some things are certainly literal, and the context would instruct us here, but sometimes we should see things in what we would call a symbolic or a literalistic sense, which means that there is a literal true meaning behind the allegory or the symbolism that we read. Here's an easy one, okay? That I mean, I think like no one, literally no one gets wrong. In John 10, 7, Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep. No one thinks that Jesus is actually a door. No one thinks that, right? An actual door to a fenced off area with hinges that allows sheep to come into the enclosed area. The same idea is being communicated in Matthew 7, when Jesus speaks about the narrow way and the narrow gate and the wide way and the wide gate, the point being that the narrow gate is as wide as Jesus's shoulders and he must bring you through it, in other words, and he does, praise the Lord, but Jesus isn't a literal door or a gate. But there is a literalistic truth expressed in the symbols, isn't there? That no one can be saved apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's clear. And through symbolism, the Holy Spirit has chosen to convey much of the truth 
here in this book that we'll be reading over the next coming weeks and months through these symbols. It's not to say that there's no historically or scientifically accurate truth in Revelation or the Bible as a whole, especially. There certainly is. But what we read and we exegete and we find with application over the next coming months, we need to understand that much of what we read is given to us in symbolic form. And that'll be, that'll stand out as we go over the, the details in the text in coming weeks. Why would the Holy Spirit do this? Why not just tell it plainly and simply? I don't know, but I could speculate. For one, some of the things that we're dealing with here are just too great for our simple and finite minds to comprehend. God is infinite. God is perfect in all of his glory. And the full exposure of his glory is deadly even to, to our fallen natures. But think of the description that we had in Jesus back in chapter 1, the glorious Christ, where John has to describe what Jesus was like with descriptive words, symbolic words, rather than giving a literal physical description. Or in Revelation chapter 4, what we just read this evening, John sees a throne surrounded by a rainbow, a sea of glass, seven lamps of fire, four living creatures that are fantastic and covered with eyes. They're full of eyes. And they all speak a language that John can understand. And one has a face of a man. There's one that's like a lion, one that's like an ox, one that's flying like an eagle. And then there are these 24 elders who sit on a throne and the Lord, for the Lord, and they cast down their crowns. Yeah, Adam? Yeah, I'm not prepared to talk about that tonight. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, that's my point, though, is that the imagery is symbolic and it's fantastic. And so part of maybe the reason as to why it tells us it in this way is because it's communicating to us things that we actually can understand because to actually physically and literally describe everything would be incomprehensible to us. Because it's too good, too great for us. So these things actually mean something true. And we'll draw those things out over the next coming weeks. But I mean, yes, it's very, it's difficult. And again, that's maybe part of the reason why a lot of pastors choose not to go past chapter 3. The anth Yeah, God is a spirit, right? He doesn't have a body like man. So it has to be anthropomorphic language. But those were angels. Those are creatures. And that's still something we'll have to, I'm excited to look at and get into. So... What does all this symbolism mean? Well, in order to answer that, we need to also look, we need to look carefully at the overall picture and then search for the central truth rather than press all the details super hard. So I, I want to press some of them and we will over the coming weeks, but not too hard. We don't want to make the mistake of over-spiritualizing the text to make it say something that we think it should say. So what we are best served by is with this kind of literature is to look for the overall central truth and interpret the vision from that vantage point. So when it comes to all those eyes, there's, we should look at it through the central truth that is being proclaimed here in this text and then come to a conclusion based on that. But I will press some of those details when we get to those specific verses in again in coming weeks. So what is that overall detail for chapter four? Well, the Apostle John gives us that in the second verse in this chapter. John says, At once 
I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The occupied throne, then, is our focus for this chapter. And so when we read all the rest of the verses, we should be thinking of them in light of this. And I mentioned earlier already, chapter 4 especially focuses on the sovereignty of Yahweh over all of creation on the, there on the throne. And chapter 5's focus is on the Son's sovereignty over redemption, while, while He too is there associated with the throne. So all the symbols and the numbers and the colors and the statements should be viewed in light of those two central truths. And we'll be using those as kind of like a framework as we look at the details of the specific chapters. There's one other thing to be aware of interpreting this portion of the book, especially in light of chapter 4 and 5 and the symbolism that we see here. I remember, said this in earlier sermons, the symbols he uses are drawn directly from the Old Testament. And so we're to interpret them in light of the broad picture of redemptive history and the broad, I guess, the backdrop of God's plan to redeem sinners. So this means that the book of Revelation is kind of like a divine commentary upon the Old Testament, showing that all of it that was foretold was or will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and upon whom the redemptive story is actually focused upon. The key to interpret these, these symbols in Revelation correctly, including the scene in heaven, which we have um, for uh, the throne room here, is to observe how these symbols were used in the Old Testament and how they are now interpreted in light of coming to Christ. So in other words, the New Testament, what we have here, helps us to interpret the Old Testament. And so when we look at the Old Testament while being informed by the New Testament, we are given a bigger and more complete picture and understanding of the overall history of redemption and plan of God. So for example, in these two chapters in Revelation, chapters 4 and 5 alone, there are 14 different elements drawn from Daniel chapter 7. And the prophecy regarding the Son of Man in, in Ancient of Days in chapter 7, 14 different things. And chapter 4 actually lines up really interestingly with Daniel chapter 7. We'll look at that probably next week, Lord willing. From Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2, from Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 7, there are things that are specifically meant to call us back to that so that when we look at these chapters in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, we are better able to see what those prophets were talking about as well. And so he's going to point us um, in a direction that the Old Testament prophets couldn't. John is doing that, that is. He'll point us directly to the Lamb who's alone worthy to open the scroll, which was sealed until the time of the end, which is what we read in chapter 5. They alluded to Jesus in those texts, but they weren't able to specifically say it because it was part of God's plan to progressively reveal these things. But here in Revelation, it's the final revelation that God has given to the church, and it's all culminating in Christ. And so we're going to look back at those Old Testament passages and see how they strengthen what we even understand here in Revelation as well, too. Uh, through the use of apocalyptic imagery, John ties together a number of Old Testament themes, giving the church on earth, which we are numbered with, giving us heaven's perspective on Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer when he prayed this, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, in this scene here in chapters 4 and 5, we are given a glimpse of God's will being done in heaven. Therefore, we may say that these two chapters are giving us a summary of the history of redemption viewed from a heavenly perspective. This is like 
this is like what we're seeing God's plan of redemption unfold from his point of view, if that makes sense, which we don't often get the opportunity to look at it from that perspective. But here, Revelation is compelling us to do so. Christ not only rules over his church, but he rules over the entire universe. And before the redemptive drama reaches its conclusion at his second coming, we know that the outcome is certain. Why? Because God's will is being done in heaven. And we have every reason to believe that one day will be done on the earth as well, despite the apparent victory of the beast over the saints that we have to deal with now that we have been dealing with for the past 2,000 years. It's only apparent an apparent victory that we are beholden to now. And the last couple of months have been especially rough if we've been paying attention. There's that war in Russia, which isn't really talked about anymore now. And who knows what to believe is true about that. Uh, there was that rampage in Buffalo last week. There was the Presbyterian congregation that was shot up last week. There was that heartbreaking massacre in Texas uh, just yesterday. The media is trying to drum up fear over this monkeypox, if that's even what it is. And that's just what we know. I mean, so many other things are going on, which we probably don't even get to hear about. But friends, what we read in chapters 4 and chapter 5 are greater than what we see with our eyes here in this age. Thy will be done on earth is exactly what God has promised for which Jesus has asked us to pray. In Revelation 4 to 5, we see God's will being done in heaven, giving us hope for what will be done one day in reality upon the earth, in the consummated and final new heavens and new earth. And there is, of course, a sense, and we've talked about this before, in which, of course, God is already victorious even here on the earth. Even when a Christian is, like these Christians who were killed at this Presbyterian congregation in Southern California last week, even though that to the world looks like defeat and doom, it's truly still a victory. They, their salvation wasn't harmed or damaged in any way in that. They were, they were just ushered into glory at that point. God's will was still being done, but eventually on the earth. So it, was, it exists in that already not yet tension. Right now is the already aspect where it exists, but the fullness of it isn't ours. But when Christ comes at the second coming, then the scene that we read here in four and five will be, and, and the worship that is happening, taking place, will be like what it is for all of us as well. <clears throat> and that brings us to a general point of application. We'll close with this, just a general one, because tonight has been more about seeing the forest rather than the trees. And we'll get into the specific details in the coming weeks. But the vision of the throne that we received in chapters four and five, friends, is the source of, our, of the Christian's hope and joy. For the person who is trusting Christ alone, to be justified by faith in Christ alone. In Christ alone, because it was him in his holy life that he lived on your behalf and his substitutionary atonement for you on the cross. This is a very significant revelation for us. It's in part why it's so tragic that people today only understand these events as future, as if chapters four and five are only true in the future and not right now or for the last 2,000 years even. This is very significant, given the fact that we've covered in the first three chapters of this book, uh, the, the things in the first three chapters of this book focused on John's vision for these uh, of the resurrected Christ as he walks through the midst of his churches, empowering them through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of his grace and mercy to those around him. And this was clear, and those churches had issues, right? They had troubles, they had trials before them. Uh, this was clear in those seven letters or addresses that the risen Christ gave to the seven churches that are in what is modern-day Turkey, but then, you know, Western Asia. Uh, and in each of those letters, 
Jesus knew the exact circumstances facing his people. He spoke words of encouragement to them. He promised blessing for those who were truly a part of the church and curses for those who were only outwardly a part of the church. And those very warnings, those curses, they would serve to bring about repentance in the life of the community as well, persevering the saints, as well as working regeneration or being the means that worked regeneration in the elect who were not yet saved, that helped them to believe the gospel. But these seven churches were also typological of Christ's church in every age. And so when what Jesus said to those churches, he says to us as well, that's what I that's how I was trying to teach those, hopefully that came across. And what he has promised to those seven churches, Christ has also promised us as well. And so in Revelation 3.21, Jesus promised the overcomers in Laodicea that one day they will sit with him upon the throne, ruling over the nations. Well, that is important to God's people, since many of these Christians face persecution and death from the satanically empowered beast who sought to force Christians to confess that Caesar was Lord rather than that Jesus Christ was Lord and God. A number of people lost their lives and livelihoods. Other Christians faced slander and persecution from those Jews who sought to stop these churches from preaching the gospel. And most of these congregations struggled with the question of how to remain faithful to Christ when living in the midst of a pagan culture, when living in the midst of an unbelieving world. Hard-pressed, hated, persecuted, and then repeatedly tempted to compromise with the spirit of the age, the Christians in these seven churches are promised that if they overcome by remaining faithful to the gospel, they will receive all of the blessings promised to Christ. And we have to remember, friends, that these same kinds of trials and tribulations are before us as well. And I don't simply just mean a first family church by saying us, but by us, I mean the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever nation, tribe, or tongue that it exists, that it, she finds herself in. The context that we have doesn't always look the same as it does for the context of other believers in other places. And just because it has been relatively easy for us to be a Christian here in the United States for the last couple hundred years, it doesn't mean that it's like that for Christians in other parts of the world. And it doesn't mean that it will always be like that for us either. In fact, I mean, the writing is on the wall that unless the Lord has mercy, it won't be easy for us for much longer. It was only a few years back that a baker lost his business for failing to support a homosexual relationship. The whole month of June is now devoted to sexual deviancy. We should call it Romans 1 month, actually. And actually, you may want to just read Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 7 every day for the month of June so that you'll be thinking of what God actually thinks of homosexuality and sexual deviancy. They're very relevant to what's going on. Uh, you're probably aware of the recent push to subvert the faith by progressives and liberals, people wanting to retain the name Christian, but to deconstruct what it's meant to be Christian for the last 2,000 years, or the announcement and the pushback that our culture has been giving over the possible overturning of road versus way. Uh, or the um, We saw just today, actually, I heard from a friend who was requesting prayer because he was called into his employer's office because he had an anti-abortion sign in his own vehicle. In his own personal vehicle, he got called into his man, his boss's office to talk about that. Christians, true Bible-believing Christians, that is, are increasingly being seen as radicals to the society. And this has happened before. Who, who knows what the future of our comfort here in the USA is going to be? But one thing is certain. We know without a doubt that the godly will suffer persecution. 
that those who with boldness live after the manner that Christ instructs us to by the faith that he provides for us will suffer persecution. And so this large picture of God's sovereignty and his glory given to us in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and the details that we're going to go over in the coming sermons are a major source of hope and joy for us in light of whatever else is going on. And then also it's no accident then that John's vision of heaven immediately follows these seven letters to the seven churches. The best way to encourage a suffering and persecuted church is to give them a glimpse of God's throne, to give them a glimpse of God's might, his majesty, his glory. A glimpse of God's power will give us courage to face the beast. For the final victory is certain and the beast will be defeated. A glimpse of heaven reminds us that God's goodness and justice, which reinforces the promise that the righteous will be triumphant and the wicked will be punished. A glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of the lamb who was slain, reminds us as God's people that our, that our redemption is an accomplished act. It's an accomplished fact in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This heavenly vision reminds the saints that in the midst of their trials, their suffering, and even their temptations, God sovereignly is controlling all things. And one day, God's will, which, which is now being done in heaven, will indeed be done upon the earth as well. And so it's important and a great blessing that he's given us these two chapters. So let's let's pray, and then we'll answer any questions, if we can. Our Father, we do thank you for this majestic vision that we were given, and we know, Lord, that it doesn't come to us as being able to be understood easily, but we pray that you would give us grace, that we may labor in your word and understand it, Lord. We know that apart from Christ, we certainly couldn't understand it in its truest sense. We could understand the words, the meanings, the concepts, but we desire belief, Lord, and we desire from that as well to be sanctified and to be maturing in Christ. So please, for your glory's sake, help those things to be accomplished even today and over the coming weeks as we consider this great text, Lord. May you be exalted. You are worthy, O Lord, to open the scroll. And if it wasn't for you, we know that we would all be utterly lost. So we give you all praise and glory, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Any questions? If Hopefully not any questions about the specifics because we'll try to get into that over coming weeks. But if you have questions about the specifics, you can say that now. And then I can try to think about that even as well. Understand? Does John know that there are eyes inside the monsters? It was shown to him. Yeah, it was shown like... How? I don't know. You know, I mean, it was shown. He got eaten by one. He, he was not eaten by one. What was that? Oh, monkeypox? Yeah, it's in the news, man. I'll, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. It's, it's, it's actually in Africa. It's very deadly. It kills like 10% of the people. But it, there's a lot of people that have it now, and they're not dying. So it's weird. It's like some weird. That get it. Is it possibly worse? So one in ten die. So like, you know, COVID, everybody was like scared of it. Monkeypox, you actually should be scared of. But it's not, <laughs> it's not the actual real monkeypox. Yeah. And so, anyway, just know, just try to remember those things in the coming weeks, okay? We, we look at Revelation not in a linear fashion, but symbolically and through a cyclical, I know nobody is, a cyclical fashion, not linear and symbolically. I mean, technically, we are done. We did pray. So. Thank you. We're done. All right.